Good morning, everyone. If you have uh, a Bible with you, if you want to find uh, the book of Daniel, uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. Uh, we are in the second chapter of Daniel, and we've started this new year, this new decade, looking at this wonderful story in the Bible. Uh, one of the reasons that we're going through this book is that the book of Daniel tells quite a remarkable story of Daniel and a few of his friends who have been taken into captivity from uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been defeated. The Israelites, the Jewish people, had been defeated by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar had taken some of the Jews into captivity, into exile in Babylon. And the story of these young people who were probably only teenagers at the time, at least when the story begins, it tells of their resilience in the face of a culture around them which is trying to indoctrinate them and teach them a completely different worldview, to teach them completely different belief system, and trying to crush and remove everything of their faith. It tells a story of how they remained resilient and steadfast to what they believed, which is a helpful story for us to work through in the city and in the time we live in. How, as Christians, can we main, remain resilient and steadfast to what we believe the Bible teaches, to what we believe is true about Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna read the first 12 verses of chapter two, and then I'm gonna pray. So try and move out of the way, here we go. It says, in the second year, by the, looks as I'm just about to play the song as we go. I'm not gonna do that. I only know one song on the keyboards which is Walk of Life by Dire Straits, but we'll, another time. <laughs> Back to this. Okay. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show his interpretation. 
the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. That was it, fine. Okay, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are a sovereign, faithful king. And we gathered here this morning to worship you, to know you as our faithful Lord and Savior, as our Father, as our friend. We thank you that you've opened up a way for us to know you as we would a father, to know you intimately and closely and dearly. And we pray, help us this morning to receive from your word grace and your goodness. Help us to see truth for what it really is. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you guys often dream. I tend to not really remember dreams. Every now and again I will. Some of you might recall quite vivid dreams or recurring dreams, nightmares even. But most of the time, the way we would understand a dream is probably that we just, our minds are just processing the day or processing the week in a very peculiar way often, but that's how we would see our dreams. It's kind of like our disk drive in our head is just kind of defragmenting during our sleep. But what happens to the king here is quite profound. We don't know quite how the dream came to him, but it sounds more like a nightmare than just a dream. The king loses sleep. I don't know if you've ever had a dream so profoundly disturbing that you've lost sleep over it. Not even that night, but in future nights, you've not been able to sleep because of that dream. He threatens the Chaldeans who are his magicians. His, they're kind of in the king's court. They're his wise men that he's been training, of which Daniel is is one of those. He threatens that if they don't tell him not only the interpretation of the dream, but he tests them. He wants them to tell him the dream itself, and if they can't, he's going to kill them. He's going to tear them limb from limb. Now, why, 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 are they make, why is he making such a big deal of this? Well, at the time, dreams would have been important. For a, for a king to have a dream could have been nation-shaping. They held dreams as with a very high value. Lots of importance were attached to them. It was a major part of their life. 
in Babylon at the time, there would have been sanctuaries, places where you could go deliberately to sleep and dream within interpreters on hand to explain your dream when you woke up, like dream incubators. They were very passionate about dreams and interpretations. To interpret a dream was, was like a science. To be trained in how to do that was like learning a science. And these Chaldeans, these interpreters, these are the wise people of the time. These are the university professors. These are the, the king's political consultants, his gurus, his trend spotters. So when they're, they're supposed to interpret this dream, it's like a room full of uh, political consultants gathering together to determine the future of the nation. That's essentially what they're trying to do. And we might laugh, because it all seems a bit, you know, a bit kind of middle ages, a bit like something out of a weird Disney film, doesn't it? But what's happening here in this story is a, a contest between two different belief systems, which is a lot of what's happening in the book of Daniel. There's a kind of a spiritual warfare or wisdom warfare that's taking place in this story. Can the Babylonian wisdom give the answers? Can it interpret this dream? In Isaiah 46 and 47, it talks about these gods of Babylon they would, they would have gone to to seek the interpretation. It says in Isaiah 47, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. So when it's talking there about dividing heavens, who gaze at the stars, it's talking about astrology. That's a lot of what these magicians, the Chaldeans, would have done. It would have been uh, all sorts of divination, astrology, all sorts of ancient magicians' recipes and potions to try and hear from their gods to be able to give this interpretation. And I guess the good question for us is how do we, how do we relate to this story today? We could talk about, you know, what do dreams mean? We could talk about that, that for the next half an hour. We could talk about the occults, perhaps. But I think there's perhaps some more valid ways we can look at this story, which will help us this morning, because the same way that they go to uh, all this magic astrology to receive wisdom, there are lots of ways today in the world around us that we seek to find wisdom, that we seek to find out what is true. That's one of the big questions of our age. What is true? What's post-truth, half-truth, former truth, whatever we would decide to talk about? What is True. It's one of the big things that nags away at us. One of the big things that we're bombarded with all the time. All these truths are pounded against us. Talks in Corinthians about a wisdom of our age. 
which will pass away. The wisdom of the Chaldeans has mostly passed away, but there's a wisdom of our age today that will also pass away, but right now can seem very real, very challenging to us. So I wanna look at a couple of ways that wisdom comes to us today. So the first of all is, um, to quote from, I think it was Francis Bacon who first came up with this term a few hundred years ago, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. So one of the big things that we believe, one of the big things our society is founded on is the, the idea that is what we need is more knowledge. That, that's the problem. That's why there are so many ills in society, so many things have gone wrong. It's because those people who do those bad things, they don't know enough. If we can retrain them, if we can re-educate them, if we can give them more knowledge, less bad things will happen. The increased knowledge is somehow will give us power to receive more happiness, more fulfillment, more control, that all you need is more qualifications, more time on Wikipedia, and then somehow you'll have the answers. I read recently a study that came from Yale University in the USA that people find that even just the act of searching for things on Google increases our belief in our own knowledge even in things we haven't searched for. <laughs> Just the act of using Google itself makes us think that we know more than we actually do. It's scientifically proven that that's what happens in our heads. That because we have the internet around us, we think that we're the most advanced, we're the most intelligent, most knowledgeable civilization that has ever lived. And yet I've been on the internet recently there's a lot of weird stuff on there. A lot of stuff that's just not true. A lot of stuff that's just crazy. You can go on Instagram and find out what friend's character you are. A lot of stuff on the internet which is completely pointless. I read a wonderful story recently of, um, this isn't really related, but it's a funny story about something I found out on the internet. Oh, you know, David Bowie, right? A story about David Bowie. So the, um, a few, two years ago, um, Elon Musk was sending another rocket up into space and they needed to increase the payload, the weight on this rocket. So they put a Tesla, one of his cars, on the rocket. And then they released the Tesla uh, in space and it's, it's orbiting around the Earth right now, one of, his, one of his Teslas, so the story goes. And uh, apparently they put a, a mannequin in the Tesla to drive it because they thought that'd be fun. And they, they put on the radio... David Bowie's song, Space Oddity. Ground control to Major Tom. It's kind of orbiting around the Earth, playing that song, although in space there's a vacuum, so no one can hear it. But the story goes that about the same time this rocket went up into space was just a, a few months after David Bowie died. And David Bowie knew he was going to die. I think he had cancer or something like that. So apparently this internet conspiracy goes that it's not actually a mannequin, but it's David Bowie himself the embalmed body of David Bowie floating around the earth. Sounds quite fun, doesn't it? Some of you are taking notes, so you're going to rewrite your wills. 
dear children, when I die, please send me to the moon in a Volvo. <laughs> I'm not sure what the point of that story was. Okay. <laughs> There's lots of stuff on the internet. <laughs> it's nonsense, basically. Now, knowledge, knowledge isn't a bad thing, obviously. But knowledge very quickly becomes, becomes a bit of an idol, becomes something that if we don't have it, we're somehow inferior. And that all I need to succeed is more knowledge. It becomes like an ultimate, absolute thing. And when something becomes ultimate and absolute, it's effectively become an idol. Another one, a bit similar like this, it's not just that knowledge is power, but even in the last few years, we've changed how we think about knowledge. And the knowledge that is most important is not what we read on the internet, because we've realized that's nonsense, but it's what we think about ourselves. That's the most important knowledge that we could receive. And this search for identity this search for discovering who we are becomes the most important thing about our lives and is determined solely by what we think about ourselves. I am who I say I am. That's how many of us think, it's how the world around us thinks. And this thing becomes a, a sacred thing, becomes unquestionable. Because if, if someone has said that's what they are, then no one, no one can question that. I could say I'm a 72-year-old Norwegian woman. My name is Tusk. And you wouldn't be able to question that because that's who I've said I am. I'm not saying that, by the way, just to be clear. But we live in a world where there's no greater knowledge than what I say about myself. And we can laugh at these magicians from thousands of years ago who get into all this occult weirdness, but yet many people in our city, and we ourselves in many ways, do the same. We pursue all sorts of different things to try and unlock the true meaning of who we are, to try and open up kind of some sort of vessel with inside of ourselves. So even today, that. Astrology is a growing phenomenon. More and more people are reading their star signs. More and more people are getting into tarot cards. More and more people are getting into things like mindfulness as tools to unlock what's true about themselves. That's why some people, how some people use Christianity. That Jesus is just some kind of a tool to discover who you really are that pastors and your friends in the church are just kind of, just like life coaches to help you discover your true identity. And if we're not careful, actually what becomes God in your life is not God, but yourself. Because if what you say about yourself is the most important thing, and if no one can question that, if it's become an absolute thing, it's become... God. Now, again, I must make it really clear, I'm not suggesting that knowledge 
is bad. Not suggesting that even knowing about ourselves is bad. Of course it's not. I'm not saying that we should switch off the internet, that we should burn all the books. Because even if you see in this story of Daniel that Daniel lives in this world of false wisdom, that he's one of these magicians, that probably Daniel was trained in all these magic occult practices, the same as these other guys were. That might bend your brain a little bit. Huh, wow. He, he's, he's holding firm to his faith, and yet he's living so closely surrounded, even learning the same things that everyone else is learning. So I'm not saying that to be a Christian is just close yourself off from all of these things. Because there's lots of good things we can learn. There's lots of benefit to that. There's lots of wisdom around us. But what Daniel knows, what Daniel knows is its weaknesses. As we've been talking about these last few weeks, Daniel remains resilient. He doesn't run away. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm just going to believe everything they tell me. He's resilient. He holds the line with what he believes. And in this story, what happens next, we don't have time to read all of it, but Daniel takes up the challenge that these magicians refuse to do. Takes up the challenge not to only interpret the dream, but to tell the king what his dream was itself. And he prays, and God gives him this vision. And we're going to read the next bit of the story from verse 31. So this is Daniel telling King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. It says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now, now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another king, kingdom inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, 
so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring to them an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So Daniel gives the king the dream, his interpretation, this great dream of this giant human image, which is then struck, struck down by this rock. And this rock grows to fill the whole earth. And this giant human image that he sees, in many ways, it's a, it's a parody of the divine image. That's what this human image is. It's kind of a, a mock, a joke at God's original image that he'd set up. That's the story of the Bible that God sent into his world. He didn't just make the world, but he sent his, his image, humanity, that we're made in God's image. And he sent us to rule this world that he's given us in his image as he created it, as he made it. But what humanity does is it's, it doesn't want the image of God. It wants its own image, its own greatness. Because we think that we're wiser and we're smarter and we're better. So we put our own image and say, no, we don't want that kingdom. We want our own kingdom. We want our own power to rule. We get to decide the rules. But what you end up doing is you build a kingdom without the one true king. And that's what's happening in the world around us right now. It can sometimes feel powerful, overwhelming, but there are kingdoms that are being built that won't last, that will fall, that will fail. In this dream, he sees four kingdoms, all of which fail. If you look through the course of human history, you'll see kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Dutch, the British, the Americans, the Russians. All these empires, one day, fail. Maybe in a decisive battle or moment, or maybe over hundreds of years, it just slowly shrivels and decays. And the power is lost. I own an, an atlas that belongs to my grandma from, uh, I think the date on it is like 1910 or around that time. So it's over 100 years old now. 
And in the middle, there's a map of the whole earth, and everything that belonged to Britain is in pink. There's quite a lot of it. And you read it and think, oh yeah, it's pink. We own all the pink. But if I looked at a map now, there wouldn't be a lot of pink left. A tiny blob that doesn't want to be part of Europe, floating <laughs> in the sea. And that's really all that's left now. And that's true of every kingdom that ever comes and stands, whether it's a geographic kingdom or just kingdoms of power and influence, voices, the zeitgeist, this secular wisdom around us which tells us what to think. All of these kingdoms will fall and fail. All of them will be defeated. And the interesting thing about this dream, this story, is that Jesus identifies himself with this story. He talks about it in Luke chapter 20. He tells them a parable, and then he says, he looks to his disciples, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting from Psalm 118. And then he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is talking about this picture, this dream, this prophecy that appears to Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel. And Jesus is saying that he's this stone that hits the feet of this human image and crushes it to pieces. Perhaps a helpful way to think about it would be the story of David and Goliath, which many of you will be familiar with, from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Famously, David, again, probably just a teenager, a young man, he's faced against Goliath, this mighty enemy, this Philistine, huge giant, and all the army are afraid of him. But Daniel goes to this brook, this stream, he picks up these smooth stones, and he goes with his tiny little slingshot, he fires one into Goliath, and Goliath falls. We often tell that story as, as a kind of a, a Christian sort of pick-me-up that we can take down our giants. But again, it's actually a story about Jesus. And this story is very similar. That the giants that stand against you, wherever it's this, the wisdom of the age around us, which can feel daunting and terrifying, Maybe it's the lies you've believed in your own heart. Maybe it's the confusion within you. Maybe even about your own identity. Maybe it's just this sense of lostness and worry and fear. Maybe it's just the sin in your life which is just overwhelms you, cripples you. All of those things that stand against us have been defeated by this rock, Jesus, that hits this divine image, shatters it, into pieces. That's what Jesus does. But the wonderful thing in this dream, Jesus isn't just this David and Goliath stone that defeats the power of secular wisdom that stands against us. He is also the rock that goes to fill the whole earth. 
the cornerstone which everything is built upon. And that might sound mysterious to you. Maybe if you're here and you're not a believer, that might sound peculiar and mysterious. Well, in Colossians, it talks about that. It says in Colossians chapter 1, that the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. It goes on to then explain it a bit more in Colossians 2. It says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and then the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The mystery in this story, that's what Daniel has to go and interpret. There's this, talks about in verses 18 and 19 of Daniel 2, this mystery that's hidden, that the magicians can't interpret. But the mystery that's hidden is Jesus. He is all the wisdom and understanding that you really need. Now, again, that might still sound mysterious to you. You might think, how, the fact, how does the fact that Jesus, you know, if he's the son of God, if he's alive, if he's died and rose again, I, that's all true and I love it, but how does that make me any wiser? It's a good question. How does that make you any wiser? Well, first of all, it tells us a few things. It tells us that where you might believe that knowledge is power, the reality is that true wisdom doesn't really have a lot to do with knowledge. True wisdom isn't about knowing things. Wisdom, wisdom isn't a concept to be learned. It's a relationship to be enjoyed. That's what it is to have wisdom for life, is to enjoy God forever. Because that's what you were made for. When you start doing the thing that you're ultimately made for, your life will begin to make sense, begin to become real and alive to you. And when, when you know Christ, when you know Jesus, it's like the lights come on on your life. And suddenly you're able to reinterpret the whole world, not in light of who you are or what you've been told, in the light of who he is, what he's done. Because everything about us is suddenly redefined and it's not about our own self-knowledge. Our identity is redefined. Because if your starting point is not, oh, I need to figure out who I am, so I need to somehow search deep within, within inside myself to find out who I am, you won't find the answers there. If your starting point is, I'm, I'm a child of God, <laughs> that completely will transform how you think about yourself. I'm a son and daughter of the living God. That changes everything about how you conceive, consider yourself. When we begin to realize that we're not some parody of the divine image, but we're made in the image of God. Again, that completely transforms how you think about yourself. 
transforms how you love other people. This isn't just someone who's trying to annoy you. This isn't just someone who's hurt you. It's someone else who's made in the image of God that he loves and he cares for. Now I can have compassion for them because he has compassion for them. And that might sound perhaps controversial in the age that we live in. But if you live with this idea that somehow all you need to do is just explore deep within yourself, you'll be a bad God. You know, most days, I can't even decide what I want to have for lunch. And I'm supposed to answer all these deepest questions about my life from within here. That will let you down. You'll only really discover who you are when you submit your life to following Jesus. When you realize what he's done for you, that he's defeated your enemies, he's won this great victory for you, and he's called you into this intimate, wonderful relationship with him. We also have a wonderful, true wisdom because we know that Jesus is on his throne and a new kingdom has begun its reign. Sent out into history now is the kingdom of God. And he's called us to be part of that. It says in Revelation that he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And we pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're alive today, that in your death and resurrection, that you defeated all the enemies that stand against us. You defeated all the wisdom of our age that seeks to trick and deceive us. And that we can find all the answers we really need for life and godliness. They're all in you. They're all in you that you're all the wisdom and understanding that we need. You're all the truth that we need. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you would come and draw our hearts again to you. We've been searching in all sorts of different places to find the answers, to find fulfillment, to find happiness, to find understanding and wisdom. We come again to you knowing you're the true source of all we need. We put our trust in you, our faithful, risen King. Amen.